Hello everybody, um, as promised I'm going to mix it up a bit by putting my mental meanderings into a separate uh, bonus podcast each week and keep the interviews separate. I had an interesting chat uh, with a few ex-colleagues recently and it's interesting what people like. Some people really like the uh, my kind of free-flowing mental downloads on certain policy issues and certainly the feedback I get from serving officers is that they're very relieved and refreshed to hear someone saying saying it kind of as it is and that they don't feel constrained because they're still serving and they they feel that they can't speak out so hopefully I'm able to say some of the things that they would be saying privately uh, I feel pretty confident that I, I am because those are the conversations that I have with them. So, um, so yeah, so treat me as your sort of unofficial mouthpiece for those who feel that they don't have a voice in certain subjects. And it's really interesting that uh, some of those people who have who have had those conversations with are actually really very senior in the police. Um, uh, I'm not going to name them because it would be wrong to do that. But uh, these are people who are certainly a sort of superintendent, chief superintendent rank. So interesting, really, that you've got people at a very senior level in the organisation who really just don't feel that they can say things honestly about the way things are happening in policing. I find that really quite depressing. But then having said that, that was probably me as well. So I can't be too critical of, of that position. Uh, one thing that I want to just sort of point out is um, I'm really desperate to get more women on the podcast. I have tried. Uh, I, I do feel that the guests so far are overwhelmingly male, which is slightly annoying because many of the very best police officers that I worked with over the years uh, were women. And um, I really desperately want to get some more women on the podcast. So I do have uh, one or two lined up, but it's just a case of trying to coordinate diaries and all of that kind of boring admin stuff. But uh, rest assured that I am trying very hard to get more women on the podcast. But for the purposes of today, I want to focus on two issues, which I think are very sensitive, complex and at the same time frequently very much misrepresented in the mainstream media. And those subjects are uh, the current and it seems never-ending cycle of knife crime, particularly in London. Still an enormous number of children dying in knife crime, and predominantly young black children, which I think is really shocking and desperately needs a greater focus, I would suggest, from government. But we'll come on talk to talk about that in a minute. Um, and the other issue is deaths in police custody, which is another very sensitive issue, which um, I saw something in The Guardian of all places uh, the other day. It was a review of a film and I'll talk about I'll talk about that as well. So one of the other things that has been sort of pointed out to me by different people, different sort of listeners, is that um, some people are in the police and they a lot of the stuff that I talk about, well, maybe some of the interviews, they kind of know a lot about that already. So they're maybe not that interested or as interested. Um, and others um, are not in the police and they find 
kind of all of it interesting, really, because it's sort of eye-opening for, for them to, to gain a better understanding of what policing's all about. So the challenge for me, I suppose, is to know where to pitch this. And I want to try and kind of cast the net as wide as possible. So I'm continually trying to keep it as accessible as I can for people who are not in the police and have never been in the police, uh, but at the same time, make it uh, relevant and interesting to those who are or have been. So just bear with me on that. Uh, I may get it wrong uh, from time to time, uh, in which case just skip forward and listen to another episode that you find more interesting. But before we start talking about uh, knife crime and deaths in police custody, uh, just a quick bit of news on the book, Tango Juliet Foxtrot, uh, which is going to be, I believe, published in October. I find out through a friend, actually, I didn't even find know myself, which was a bit odd. Um, my friend said, oh, I, I've seen your, your book. It's on the Waterstones website. And I was like, is it? Um, so, yeah, it is. Um, so that's good, really good. It's also on the WH Smith website and it's also on the Foils website. So, so that's a great sign. Uh, it shows that those three sort of mainstream, there's not many of them left to be fair, mainstream um, booksellers are, are going to um, buy it and promote it. And so that's really positive, really pleased about that. It's all sort of starting to feel pretty real at the moment. I'm also desperately trying to tee up some sort of high profile individuals to review the book. And um, yeah, that's really tricky because, you know, the reality is I don't move in those circles of celebs. So when you try and contact a celeb uh, that you're interested in uh, via their agent or whatever, you get what my wife would describe as uh, a good ignoring. Um, so yes, that's an interesting challenge. And the other sort of piece of homework that the publishers have set me is to try and identify a suitable image for the front cover of the book, which is, again, really quite a challenge as well, because you, you kind of want to pick something that resonates with people, something that actually uh, visually represents uh, the message that you're trying to get across. And to do that in a single image is, is really, really difficult. So, so yeah, that's where my kind of head is with the book at the so first of all, let's just talk about the violent crime epidemic that shows no sign whatsoever of abating in the UK, uh, particularly use of knives involving stabbings and murders of uh, very, very increasingly young children, really. We're talking uh, 14, 15 years old is, is, is really quite common now, sadly. And I think this issue, and I know I've talked about it before, but this issue in many ways sums up the toxic narrative around policing and how un incredibly unhelpful that has been, not just in terms of demoralising the only organisation on the front line 24-7 who can actually do something about this, but in terms of uh, letting down families, communities and the victims themselves, as well as the young men who actually commit these offences, because when they get caught, they're going to go to prison for a very long time. Their lives are going to be completely blighted for forever as a result of foolishness at the age of 14, 15, 16 years old. And the analogy that I quite like to use in respect of this horrible, toxic media narrative that just goes on and on and on and on is that 
would would you be doing that if if our country was just about to if say Russia, um, you know, invaded Latvia or Lithuania or Estonia or one of the you know Baltic states, and and suddenly we find ourselves NATO getting involved in a military conflict with Russia, would the media be talking about our armed forces in the same way that they seem to feel that it's okay to talk about the police? Uh, no, they wouldn't. Of course they wouldn't. There would be lots of, you know, our brave men and women going off to war and, you know, uh, and yet for some weird reason, I just I just don't get it. I just don't get it that they don't seem to see that the situation that many police officers put themselves into day after day, particularly in the inner cities, but not just the inner cities, in all parts of the country, many of the situations that they put themselves into are very, very similar to to, to those that, that um, the armed forces would find themselves in. But but they're doing it every single day and, and almost exclusively unarmed. So I just don't get it, if I'm honest. So I'm not going to go into each individual incident because there's just so many of them, quite honestly, and it would just take so long to do that. And... Um, well, the point I really want to make here is that this situation is is not going to improve so long as certain parts of the media and vociferous activists continue to portray the police service as as racist because that all that's going to do is make police officers extremely reluctant to get involved on the street with young black men. And the reality is here, if anyone's in denial about this, then they just need to kind of, you know, take a reality check. Um, the, the great majority, sadly, of, of these young men who are dying are from the black community. And, and they're very often being killed by other young black men. So uh, you've got situations where let's, let's talk about a, a, a sort of hypothetical scenario where you've got two or three boys who conspire together to go out and stab and kill another boy so you've got probably three two or three there who will go to prison for a very long time for uh, joint enterprise murder um, that's two or three boys whose lives are are just blighted forever uh, as well as obviously uh, a victim of that crime who's dead and and you know way 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 before their time causing untold heartache to that family as well as the families of of the boys who end up going to prison and if anybody is in in denial about all of this stuff uh, in terms of the the ethnicity thing i've given the statistics before but i'll but i'll i'll give them again for the purposes of this of this episode so uh, Professor Larry Sherman, who's a very well-respected criminologist from Cambridge University, has done a lot of work on this. Uh, and back in 2020, he did a very comprehensive study. And I'm going to I'm going to quote from the report, which is on the Cambridge University website, stated that uh, researchers said that to the best of the knowledge, theirs is the first comparison of ethnic group trends in UK homicide victimisation rates per 100,000 to be published in recent decades, if ever. They find that homicide risk for white and Asian people has stayed relatively consistent since the turn of the millennium. 
around 1 in 100,000 for white people and a little over 2 in 100,000 for Asian people, consisting primarily of persons of South Asian descent. For black people, however, risks have fluctuated dramatically over the last 20 years. The homicide victimisation rate for black people was highest in the early noughties, almost 10 in 100,000 in 2001. It dropped by 69% between 2001 and 2012 to a low of 3 in 100,000 around 2013. Rates then began to climb again, rising seven times faster than for white people to reach over 5 in 100,000 last year. When accounting for age, the disparity is starker still. For those aged 16 to 24, the 21st century average puts young black people over 10 and a half times more likely than white people to be victims of homicide in England and Wales. In fact, researchers point out that per 100,000 people, the most recent data from 2018-19 puts the murder risk of young black people 24 times higher than that of young white people. And if you want to just Google uh, violent crime, knife crime, murders, UK, or any of that, there's tons and tons of websites out there. And there's one murder map co.uk you can have a look at that i know it's not an official statistics and you'll get the official statistics from the home office or the office for national statistics but um what it does do is it shows sort of uh, head and shoulders photographs of a lot of murder victims and and it's really depressing um there's just a, a kind of a sea of of young black men's faces staring back at you um from this stuff and um so yeah so i think the issue of are black people significantly more likely to become victims of murder and knife crime? I think the answer is categorically yes. So unless you are ideologically so blind that you refuse to accept that fact, then I think we can probably all agree that there's a problem. But certainly one of the things that really jumped out at me from from that report by Larry Sherman was the crystal clear correlation between the very very steep massive rise in murders uh, from 2013 through to the current day and and that again as you know as I keep on reminding you is probably almost certainly a major consequence of the reckless decision by Theresa May and David Cameron to withdraw you know, over 20,000 police officers, 23,000 police staff, close hundreds of police stations, etc., etc. Because I remember very well that that period of police cuts didn't really start to kick in until kind of 2013-14. We didn't really sort of start to feel the pain properly until then. Uh, and the pain continued uh, very much uh, right up to the current day. And, uh, you know, there's not there's some time in this podcast to talk through the complexities of what creates a society where large numbers of young men, particularly young black men, are stabbing each other to death. It's a very, very complex issue and it's based on many, many years of social deprivation and uh, low levels of sort of uh, aspiration, absent fathers, drug and alcohol abuse. Um, poor housing, um, all sorts of different factors that contribute to that. And policing is just only one 
sort of element of, of that. And, and I said before, I'll say it again, that the police service only enters the lives of these young men, sadly, in the sort of end game scenario. In other words, they've been on a journey from birth right up to the age of sort of 13, 14, 15, when they get involved in a gang and they've all had all sorts of things go on in their lives that have not been helpful to them. And then uh, they're sort of, they find themselves attached to an urban street gang and, and the police are sort of trying to kind of keep a lid on things uh, uh, in a situation which is very, very chaotic. But I know 100% I would stake my pension on it that neighbourhood policing, the, the existence of neighbourhood policing teams up and down the UK in the years prior to when Theresa May became Home Secretary and then later Prime Minister, uh, and the, the fact that those neighbourhood policing teams were completely dismantled because of those cuts. It was those neighbourhood policing teams that was keeping the lid on things for all of those years. When you saw that steep decline in the murder rate, I guarantee you that was a, a major, major part of neighbourhood policing that achieved those reductions. And taking away those neighbourhood teams, you can see you can see what happens. And I don't propose for a minute that it was purely the police officers on those neighbourhood teams that achieved those reductions. It was the relationships that those teams built with local uh, people, with uh, teachers, with local councillors, with education health, with social services, with all of those other agencies that worked extremely effectively together in order to achieve a much more positive outcome for many young people who were going off the rails and they were able to see that, intervene very early and do something about it. So in life all you can really do is control what you can control and obviously we can't wave a magic wand and I know that um, you know they're desperately trying to recruit a large number of police officers to replace all those officers who were lost but the reality is that you've got a hemorrhaging of experience currently you've got a lot of officers retiring and you're also bringing in an awful lot of young officers who are uh, completely inexperienced and uh, and don't really understand what policing is all about and won't do realistically for sort of two or three years at least so in summary i suppose what i'd say is it's incredibly unhelpful to have this uh, constant negativity coming from the media towards policing, accusing them of pretty much everything. I think they've had a go. Uh, we're institutionally corrupt, institutionally racist, institutionally misogynistic, uh, and the list goes on. And and I know, and and the people who are working in the police at the moment know that none of those things are true, and they never have been true. It's just been a, a non nonsensical um, narrative um, based on a very small number of issues, of individual cases that are not representative at all of mainstream policing. And as I've said in my book, I tend to see all of this, this three things really that have, I think, created this horrible mess that the UK police service is currently in. And I, I sort of think of it as like, rather than the holy trinity, I, I think of it as the toxic triad. And, th and that is meddling politicians, hostile journalists, and weak police leaders who just are seem incapable of 
challenging all of this damaging discourse and ill-informed nonsense that seems to be coming the way of policing on what seems to be a daily basis. So when journalists and politicians come out with this nonsense about police racially profiling young black men in the inner cities, picking on them, um, I would dearly love to see senior cops just turn around and say, no, stop this. You've got to stop this because it's not doing anyone any harm. You've got to face up to the reality that there are a large number of young black men and children who are getting sucked into urban street gangs and they are killing each other. And whilst there are all sorts of complex reasons why that's happening and, and it's very difficult to, to undo the damage that's taken many years to, to happen, um, throwing these very crude and inaccurate allegations at policing who are out there 24 hours a day trying to stop this from happening is just unbelievably unhelpful and doesn't do those children or the communities or anyone else any favours whatsoever. So I would so love to see senior cops actually say, pack it in, let us get on with this job um, don't don't blame us when we stop young black men in the street who are frequently either carrying weapons or suspected of carrying weapons. You need to support us because you know what's going to happen? And it's already started happening, is that many frontline officers are just not getting involved. They just don't need, they just don't want the aggravation. Not when they're start on a starting salary of about 20 grand a year. And they're doing a job that appears to be almost impossible. They're trying to stop young people from killing each other. Uh, and they're going out and they're getting camera phones shoved in their faces. And they're getting stuff uploaded to YouTube. And then the thanks they get from our political masters and from the newspapers is, why are you picking on young black men? Right, I'll proceed in the format. Right, so the next uh, contentious issue that I'm going to focus on now is deaths in police custody. And the reason I want to talk about this is because I saw a article in The Guardian online the other day, and it's a review of a film. And the film's called Ultraviolence. And the title of The Guardian article is Ultraviolence Review essential documentary on deaths in UK police custody. So I'm immediately thinking, oh, that looks, that looks interesting. But obviously, as it's in The Guardian, it's probably not going to be painting a particularly positive light of policing. And sure enough, I wasn't disappointed. Um, so uh, the article is by Wendy Ide. Uh, it was on the 4th of July. And in the second paragraph of her article, she says, I wish that since 1969, more than 2,000 people hadn't died at the hands of the UK police. But there are, and they did. And harrowing as the images are, they need to be seen in Ken Farrow's documentary about the struggle for justice of the families of people who have died in police custody. 
So when I read that, I immediately thought, 2,000 people dying at the hands of police. I think, where on earth is she getting her statistics from? So I went initially onto the Inquest website, which I've been on before on one on another podcast and looked at some statistics. And then I also looked at the uh, statistics provided by the Home Office around either deaths in police custody or deaths following police contact. And what that means is it could be someone who is in custody. It could be someone who was in custody but has now been released. It could be someone who was uh, driving on the road and may have been indirectly involved in a accident involving a police vehicle. It could be a suicide uh, following police custody um, or, or in custody uh, or some sort of other medical emergency. There's all sorts of different categories of people who might fall into that police contact list. But certainly if you read that comment or that, uh, that line in that article by Wendy Eyde in The Guardian, uh, more than 2,000 people have died at the hands of the UK police. I mean, that to, to the to the ill-informed or you know mischievous reader, they would automatically assume from reading that that uh, we've murdered two thousand people. Uh, the police have murdered two thousand people since nineteen sixty nine, or, or at the very least, they've done something really so bad to them that uh, it's resulted in them d- dying. But but of course. Um, the truth is very, very far from the uh, soundbite that Wendy has obviously decided to latch on to. So in a state of irritation and exasperation, I dug out the latest home office piece of research and all of this stuff. I copied the hyperlink to the online document and I went on to the comments section of the Guardian, and I said, uh, this is a really misleading statistic that you're putting forward. It, it doesn't even begin to describe the, the actual, the, the facts of, of this, and um, and tried to explain how much care is, is given to people in custody, uh, how many people who die for all sorts of other reasons, and I'll talk about some of those reasons in a moment. Um, that have absolutely nothing to do with this sort of suggestion that the police are being heavy-handed or in s- somehow negligent. And I and I copied and pasted the link into the into my comment. So when I had a look today, to my irritation, I'm a bit grumpy today, aren't I, with all of this stuff? But this is enough. It just pisses me right off. Uh, they'd taken down the comment saying this comment was removed by a moderator because it didn't abide by our community standards and I was thinking hold on I haven't done any I haven't said anything there that's even remotely um, controversial or rude or obnoxious or anything like that um, so I thought I'm going to do it again and I put the same more or less the same comment on but I was scrupulously careful this time to ensure that there was nothing that could even be remotely uh, deemed controversial or, um, you know, argumentative or anything like that. Just giving them the facts again, put the hyperlink of the Home Office document 
into the comments section. And surprise, surprise, again, it's been removed. And when you read the comments from pretty much everybody else on that thread, it's just the usual nonsense. Uh, you know, I'll give a, a typical comment from someone here. The police have done so much damage with the general public, I just can't see any way back from them. Blah, 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 blah. Um, they're all a bunch of fascists. Um, this whole situation is going to get worse because of the nature of corruption and growing mistrust. Blah, blah, blah. And, and you just think to yourself, hold on here. I've actually tried to, to put in some balance here, but they don't want balance. And that was that so proved it to me that they don't want they don't want to hear facts, do they? All they want is to whip up their sort of readership into a sense of moral outrage about something that's based on utter bollocks. So like everything else in policing, but which the people like The Guardian or The Daily Mail like to just completely ignore, this is complex, really, really complex. And um, if you go to the Home Office, just Google Home Office, deaths in police custody, um, and you can also look at this stuff on the Inquest website. They'll, you'll find similar statistics, and you'll also find statistics on the Independent Office of Police Complaints website. So there's there's a lot of stats out there showing the truth of all of this. And and the truth of all of this is that um, the latest, uh, the most recent sort of deep dive, sorry, that's a horrible managey kind of term, isn't it? Um, most, most recent uh, study on this was done by the Home Office back in 2017, and they did a, a whole lot of work looking at, you know, numbers of deaths in custody or involving police contact, um, the reasons for it, age, ethnicity, cause of death, all these sort of different things. And um, and the the reality the reality is that the overwhelming majority of people who die either in police custody or having been released from police custody or in some sort of police contact scenario, um, it has it's kind of almost nothing to do with uh, the involvement of policing other than the fact that, that they, they died around that time or in custody. So according to that um, study by the Home Office between between 2004 and 2015, so I, I'm fairly confident this will still be the same, uh, the same sort of reasons. Um, over 50% of people who died was through natural causes. So that's, you know, someone having a heart attack or having an, a, a, you know, a, a massive stroke or, um, or something else, which is a, a medical issue. And then um, drug and alcohol plays a massive role. So... Um, 49, um, in 49% of cases, uh, alcohol and or drugs were a cause of death. And, and anyone who's been in the police for more than about two minutes will know that a very large number of people who come into police custody are either intoxicated through drugs or alcohol or both. Also, when they come into custody, we don't know anything about their their sort of health status. An awful lot of the people the police deal with have got very poor general health. Um, they've got a history of addiction and um, and they've also got very serious, very very often very serious mental health issues. Um, also, when somebody comes into custody, 
very often um, they may have an injury, a pre-existing injury that we don't know about. So they may have had a, a bang on the head or they may have been involved in some sort of altercation out in the street before before we get involved in any way. And sometimes that can be uh, a factor. There's also uh, a lot, sadly, a lot of suicides involving um, detainees. Uh, and, and that is something that, you know, is a massive a massive kind of focus within cell blocks nationally to try and stop people from from harming themselves. Um, and then there's there's all sorts of other things that I'm going to. There's lots of different things that can happen to people. But I've got to say, like like so many of these kind of horrifying, scary statistics that people like the Guardian bandy around, it's nonsense. But of course, the facts. They're not interested in facts in in the same way as um, they're not interested in in just having a grown up discussion around the reasons why young black men are killing each other. They'd much rather just turn around and blame the police for all of that stuff. And the thing is, you know, I'm speaking with complete authority here in the sense that I was a custody officer as a sergeant, as an inspector, I spent a lot of time in cell blocks. Uh, authorising uh, detention for prisoners, conducting reviews of prisoners. And I also did that as a superintendent, going into cell blocks, authorising extensions of detention. So I've been in cell blocks on and off for 30 years. And I can honestly say, I can put my hand on my heart, and I can honestly say I have never, ever seen someone being badly treated in police custody, ever. And the lengths to which we now go as an organisation, I keep on talking about we as if I'm still a police officer, the lengths to which police, the police organisation goes to ensure that people are kept safe and well in police custody is, is kind of extreme now. There's, and the CCTV almost everywhere. There's audio recording in cell blocks almost everywhere. Any prisoner who has got a, an injury is seen by a doctor as soon as possible who will assess whether that person is fit to be detained. Uh, they will also have access to a psychiatric assessment if they're exhibiting mental health issues. And and if, there, if there's any history of self-harm or any potential risk of self-harm on the basis of their behaviour, uh, they will be watched every minute that they are in police detention to ensure that they don't try and harm themselves. And and what, you know, the Guardian, bloody Guardian, honestly, um, what they don't either understand or care about is, is the fact that every single custody sergeant in the whole of the UK, bar none, unless there's some sort of complete numbskull which which is definitely not the case for any custody officer that I've ever met it is their personal worst nightmare that someone should come to harm in their cell block whilst they're on duty and the idea that that someone might try and kill themselves whilst they're responsible for their detention is just like the worst nightmare that every custody officer has so it's just so annoying when you read these silly articles that try and kind of 
create this image in the minds of their readership that we just were kind of like throwing people into cells, beating them up, you know, kind of, uh, it's just nonsense. And just going back to that toxic triad of journalists, politicians and pathetically weak senior police leaders over many years who are just relentlessly on message and fail to stick up for their staff and counter the narrative with a few God help us facts. Um, yeah, I would dearly love to, to see them come out um, swinging, so to speak, uh, against those sorts of articles and say, no, I'm sorry, you can't say that. You can't say that. You can't say that 2,000 people have died at the hands of police since 1969 because that's just bollocks. Anyway, I've been a bit angry, haven't I? So I, I, I don't mean to be. Um, it's just it's just annoying. It's, an, it's really, really annoying. And it was really interesting when I spoke to uh, an ex-colleague at the weekend who I bumped into. Uh, and he was like saying, oh, God, I'm just loving your podcast. It's so brilliant that you're saying it as it is. And we've just been starved of this type of honesty. And it's really nice to hear you as a ex-senior officer kind of say this kind of stuff because, you know, it just doesn't get said. And, and we can't say it because we're still serving. So, well, you know, I suppose the question I would ask them now would be, why not? Why aren't people actually coming out and saying, being more honest with their own managers being more honest with, you know, with everyone, because that sort of sitting there kind of, you know, hoping that things will get better, you know, that these senior officers, chief constables who go and sort of cozy up to uh, politicians and, you know, they're, it's just, they're not doing, they're not doing us any favours, none at all. And they're not doing the public any favours either, because everything is, not looking good from a public safety point of view in the UK. Right, that's it for me. I've just had a, a nice text message from um, an ex-colleague uh, who said, just finally got round to listening to one of your podcasts, the one about paedophiles, etc. I genuinely find it easy to listen to, easy to understand for a layman, and loved how you explained the grooming process without mentioning Finkelhor. So Finkelhor was a well-known academic who did a lot of research in this in this area, and a lot of that stuff is based on Finkelhor's uh, research. Well done, mate. I've now scheduled to listen to another one. So I said, right, great that you're giving me the feedback, but get on Apple and rate and review. So equally, if you like this stuff, can you do us a favour and get on Apple and give us a review? Thanks very much. Bye. <laughs>